Welcome to the Learning Shared Podcast. Hello, my name is Alan Wood and I'm your host. Thanks very much for listening. So Learning Shared is a space for anyone with an interest in supporting the needs of vulnerable learners in our society, including those with special educational needs and disabilities. We'll be hearing from and talking with a wide range of colleagues and stakeholders, including teachers, specialist practitioners, school leaders, researchers, as well as parents and carers. They'll be sharing creative, inspiring ideas, effective practice and things they've learned along their journey. With that in mind, please get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. You can visit us at www.learningshared.org or tweet us at underscore learning shared. The Learning Shared podcast is brought to you by Evidence for Learning and the EFL Send community. This is a growing community of teachers, practitioners, school leaders, researchers and academics that support children, young people and adults with special educational needs and disabilities or indeed any form of additional learning needs. You can find out more about the EFL Send community and Evidence for Learning at www.evidenceforlearning.net. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, in this episode, Alex Tompkins, who is Deputy Head at Greenside School in Hertfordshire, raises some challenging questions. Social, emotional and mental health, SEMH, is now a key component of the curriculum for children with special educational needs. Yet it is an area for which there is not a wealth of strong established pedagogies. In a thought-provoking presentation, Alex focuses on teacher-led inquiry in SEMH, but he also considers the opportunities presented by current circumstances to reflect on how inquiry might become a more significant and ubiquitous feature of formative assessment systems. Alex has read widely to inform his ideas and work and has kindly shared key resources from his literature review. If you're listening to the audio-only version of this episode, there's a link to a video of the presentation on the Recovery Curriculum website at www.recoverycurriculum.org. And if you select episode 14, you'll be able to watch and listen to the slideshow, as well as access some of Alex's references. So, once again, Professor Barry Carpenter introduces our guest, Alex Tompkins. Welcome to the next podcast in the Recovery Curriculum series. My guest today is Alex Tompkins. Deputy Head Teacher of Greenside Special School in Hertfordshire. Alex has worked in education for some 15 years and started his career in the residential sector uh, with children with very complex special educational needs. That perspective, the care, the parental perspective, led him to go forward for training as a primary school teacher and he's worked in a number of special educational needs settings. As I say, he's now the Deputy Head of Greenside Special School and from that position has been a passionate advocate for developing mental health, for the advocacy of a 24-hour curriculum and that partnership, integral partnership with parents, but also for evidence for learning. And through his association with evidence for learning, Alex has developed his interest keenly in social-emotional mental health and how the Evidence for Learning app can help us to observe, monitor, record, report the attainments and achievements of children in this new and emerging area of curriculum. And this afternoon, Alex is going to explore with us that particular theme of social, emotional, mental health. Welcome, Alex. Okay, thank you. Good to have you with us. Um, before we go into your presentation, Alex, Obviously, the whole mental health issue is a big one that's being talked around during this period of pandemic. In two weeks' time, the Department for Education is going to be launching the RHSE curriculum, Relationship, Health and Sex Education curriculum, and they're particularly doing so 
to for the uh, special educational needs field. Obviously, in that field, we've been working with uh, social, emotional, mental health since the 2015 Code of Practice. It's a fundamental part, of, a domain of the uh, EHCP for any student. It's a key factor in the curriculum framework being recommended by the Rochford Review. How do you think, therefore, we will interface RHSE with SEMH? Well, there's a great opportunity with the RHSE curriculum coming in, uh, mainly due to the fact that there's a bigger focus on the relationships and health side. Um, particularly on the relationships. The old policy that I remember kind of teaching was particularly around sex education. It was felt quite dry, in some respects quite sciencey. And the fact that it's a bigger profile is put towards the relationships and towards um, health, and particularly not just focused on health in, in a sense of being sick, but also in the, in the sense of having a healthy mind. So I think there's a real potential and the fact that they've changed in some respects the title to incorporate that relationships shows that there's a um, bigger sense and it's much needed now, particularly in the situation we're in. Thank you. Maybe it will give us then a stronger curriculum anchor for yes. embedding uh, SEMH and RSHE for that matter into mm -hmm. the, the curriculum we offer children with special education needs. Today, the day we're recording this podcast. Alex, um, 23rd of, of June 2020, the children's charity Bernardo's has announced that during the uh, pandemic period, 42% more children have been taken into care at a time when concurrently the number of people coming forward to be foster parents has diminished significantly for all the reasons we can understand and appreciate. Just reflect on those children for me for a moment, Alex. What do you think they are feeling? Well, I imagine they're feeling very lost at the moment. They're feeling, I think, you know, as well as the normal COVID implications that are affecting most of our population, I do feel that um, if you were in that situation, you'd feel like a double loss. There'd be an element of not knowing what's next and there'd be an increased anxiety. I think a lot of anxiety comes from not knowing what the future holds, not knowing where you're going to be in some respects tomorrow, but even worse if it's um, where you're going to live. So I feel that that statistic's um, quite hard to take. And also it just shows that, um, you know, more work needs to be done to focus on that, that loss and also the support given to those people that are either trying to get into care or in care. Because I feel that not just having a home to be in mm. is, is the sole thing. There's a lot more deeper anxiety and potentially mental health difficulties that would be present there. And it's about having the system in place. And as you say, there's a big challenge around getting foster carers at the moment. I know there's been a lot of promotion in Hertfordshire over the last couple of years to encourage foster work people, but it is, it is very hard mm. to get involved in that line. And I think this, the way jobs are at the moment and they're so full on, it really doesn't mean there's much capacity for parenting there to know kind of parenting someone else um, so I think it's something that I think it's a clear statistic that hopefully will put forward a, a case to um, you know drive forward some change. Yeah thank you that's particularly helpful uh, with your background in uh, residential care at one point and your career and and also you know, the fact you mentioned loss loss is a central tenet upon which the recovery curriculum has actually been built. My, my final point uh, at the moment, Alex, would be around loneliness. In the last few days, psychiatrists particularly have been talking about the loneliness of children. Loneliness is a concept often tagged to adults and particularly elderly adults um, for all the reasons that, again, we would know and, and understand. So in terms of our children, what do you think loneliness, uh, how does it manifest itself? I think loneliness traditionally is about being alone with your own thoughts. And in some respects with adults, it's this idea of traditionally older people stuck in their own house. But I think with children, that loneliness isn't expected because you'd think they'd be around people. But sometimes if you're around a limited number of people, then that loneliness can occur. So if you're in a family setting and in the past, you felt that there was other people around you, but not necessarily living in your house that you could speak to. 
then you might feel less anxious. But I think at the moment, particularly with the COVID uh, restrictions in place, I feel that there'll be a number of households that there will be children that find that they haven't got the people that they once spoke to, whether at school or in another setting, that they might talk about things, particularly teenagers. I worry particularly, you know, those sort of relationship conversations that you traditionally might have had with um, peers might not be really appropriate to do over things like social media and Zoom and other although it, it appears to be that we're more interactively connected i think in reality that sometimes that is a barrier and mm. sometimes particularly myself you know having dyslexic tendencies and stuff it is a barrier i can speak a lot better than i can type and i feel that there'd be a lot of children that might feel that you know they're stuck and mm. they don't quite know when they're next going to school or potentially when then that's going to speak to the person that they might do about certain things. Yeah. And we know that reduced social reciprocity will certainly impact on brain growth uh, for any child, and particularly, strange enough, for teenagers. Um, much as you don't think teenagers have good social interaction, um, the interactions of those peer groups are absolutely crucial at a phase when we know from neuroscience the brain is going through another major growth spurt. Thank you for that, Alex. And I hope that's given a context for our listeners in terms of very, some very current and emerging issues for which we as teachers will not automatically know the answer. And therefore, the only process available to us to search for and with the child to find those answers is that process of inquiry, a process that Alex has been leading within his school and as a project for, the, for Evidence for Learning. Alex, I'd like to invite you to give us your presentation on inquiry in social, emotional and mental health. Thank you, Barry. I would like to start by reflecting on some of the statistics you just shared in your questions. 42% of children taken into care highlights to me why better systems need to be in place to support. If we add that one in six children with special educational needs often have a mental illness and the challenges that can create the picture does look bleak. MENCAP earlier this year described many gaps in services across the UK. And often provision can be described as a bit of a postcode lottery, as many of us know. Often the capacity of services do not offer the right support that's needed in schools, uh, particularly things like CAMs and other sort of support. It's often not necessarily available to schools easily. Um, as you know, schools are often on the front line. I mean, the main link of contact with our young people. And the, the challenge we have now with the closure of schools, it, although it's damaging generally education, personally, the worrying potential is the harm of not knowing, not knowing the future. The little things teachers pick up when they meet children every day, the small human interactions and reading these. Social and emotional mental health is often the small things, very positive or negative, that can build into a problem. Without the general protective techniques used in schools, my concern is that mental health in young people may deteriorate. Although it is not all doom and gloom, as the Rolling Stones may say, there is a potential in this situation, opportunity in the moment, and the potential of a new spark being lit in education. So my presentation today is going to focus on this opportunity how I believe that a tweaking culture and thinking can have a significant impact on how our schools are led and run. We are in a period of change with the discussion of the recovery on our minds. Recovery is important, but we need to be mindful of what we're recovering to. I want to take you on a journey of inquiry in this podcast. Although focus on social and emotional mental health, I do hope you are able to see the generalised threads that can fit with other areas of your school. My social and emotional mental health journey started back in 2018. A small number of colleagues were invited to explore uh, social and emotional mental health in London. And this was organised by Evidence for Learning as part of its SEND workshops. And it enabled us to think about change. There was only a small number of us that were with Professor Barry Carpenter. And it was a great opportunity really, to really explore this area of education. Um, from our discussions on the day, it was clear that it, we're in a very fragmented position and often mental health is seen as a new focus 
while when if you do a bit of reading we've known about mental health for a long time and this led to me to think more about what could be done in my own school my personal experience of working as a parent in a residential school built on a foundation of understanding of well-being to be honest it was the sole function of my role for a number of years when i trained as a teacher although the focus of my training was on outcomes pedagogy maths and english and all things like that i always knew underneath that we needed a grounded uh, mental well-being education. My teacher training hardly focused on well-being. And although I'm not that familiar with teacher training at the moment, I'm sure the main focus is on English and maths. So I suppose this well-being mental health knowledge sat there, maybe only raising its heads in frank discussions or after a few beers. We also developed a deeper understanding of assessment. And I constantly am frustrated by the rigid clinical statistical style of assessment i always opposed to thinking of children of numbers and it always worries me to hear children talk about themselves as levels or grades i knew in the world of sen i would be sheltered from this side of education in the world of social emotional mental health and its higher focus in education there is a danger that if we want to fit social emotional mental health in a box assess it just progress it within it and give everyone a level I worry that with all the, the interventions, approaches and ideas being developed, we try and fit them into a school um, rather than being aware of the children that we're with. So I suppose I'm just offering before I start a little bit of warning around social emotional mental health because I feel that there's, there's a lot out there, um, but we need to be mindful that you see the child and particularly the children first within your school and make sure whatever you use is appropriate so i'm not kind of um advocating one way or another um, and hopefully this presentation will just give you a bit of insight as as barry mentioned i'm an advocate for inquiry-based approaches i knew that often i would problem solve situations and anyone that works in special schools like myself often knows that sometimes the ideas packages examples aren't there we either have to make them up and that's just how it is or you end up paying lots of money for something that might not generally fit. So through this presentation, I'd like to share my project as an example of practice. Some may be interested to hear that using examples and using it for problem solving is, a, is quite new in the world of research. And there's some interesting papers, one recently, that's shown that how creative and qualitative this insight might be. Because sometimes the challenge is if you just look at the evidence that's there, rather than thinking about the bigger picture, you could often, you know, that idea of not thinking wide enough in your thoughts. So sometimes sharing examples is a real good way. So you'll see that sort of idea threaded throughout the project and my thoughts on inquiring. So with all that in mind, I hope you'll find my project of interest. So my project was developed around the idea of promoting better mental well-being. Initially, this was started at Greenside, my current school, but I felt it had potential to be more. And last year, a little bit before, I pitched it at Evidence for Learning Networking events, which had a number of schools. I think there was about 400 in the room, and it was a real buzz of atmosphere. And I presented my ideas. As I mentioned, my draw to social and emotional mental health was through my time employed as a parent and also my current time as a parent to two young girls. I've always wondered if we celebrate the right things. I personally do not remember any praise, celebration or feeling proud when I went to school. I was not very good at maths, couldn't write that well, and I just about learned to read by the time I was in secondary school. So I felt that like I was quite marginalised at school. But I was a scout and a cadet and often pushed myself at weekends in the wilderness whether up a hill or leading others in terrible English weather. Looking back, I would see this as resilience, but the, at the time, this current buzzword was not mentioned. I hope everyone listening can think of examples of positive mental well-being in their friends or family. I was fortunate to be able to take uh, 36 teenagers to Japan a few years ago for scouts. And it was interesting because all the young people that I took were so different. They all had um, different sort of viewpoints. I didn't know much about their educational background, uh, but we took this group of young people to Japan. And as soon as we got there, um, we landed in Tokyo in the evening, 
and we were one side of Tokyo having to travel to the other side at about 11.30 at night. Um, and all the young people sh showed such resilience and problem solving. Um, as we stood at metro stations trying to decipher the language, anyone that's been to Japan or China will know that um, it's, it's kind of impossible to read the signs. It's kind of inferring and working out. And everyone was exhausted and there was a relentless heat because it was in the summer in Japan. I didn't know then what I do now, but you could describe each young person there, young adult, um, showing so much ability in managing their emotions and responses in the stressful situation. And we used celebration a lot when we were in Japan. And uh, to be honest, this, as a leader, I didn't really celebrate the resilience that was seen. We focused on things that they did, whether at the camp or when we were in Tokyo, things that they did, rather than focusing on how they were. And I thought that was quite interesting reflecting back. So from this and many other stories, I like the idea proposed that there is a power in the ordinary. Anyone can show resilience, and many do. I see it all the time in sleep-deprived mothers, confident PMLD children who must be going through immense pain to move in their positioning frames, but often they, they will have a smile on their face. It's, the list is endless. But do we celebrate any of these situations? Everyday resilience is seen, but do we know how to improve or promote it? The short answer is no. With any human element, there is always theory and argument. We see it today with the scientists trying to model and predict the pandemic. There's always an argument either way. But there's plenty of study in the area of resilience and social, emotional, mental health as a whole. If you delve into the search, you'll find most challenge what resilience is. Um, and I would challenge, though, that resilience is not you have it or you don't. And it's rather dependent on a number of factors. For example, the ability to bounce back and cope with change um, is quite environmental. Okay, so for myself, I can cope in a very what would be described as a stressful school situation to many people. But if you were to put me on the Arctic Circle in minus twenty with um, you know a group of huskies and stuff, I'm sure my resilience wouldn't be there because I'd be quite anxious. So I think. It's got, we've got to be really careful in how we talk about resilience because I, I read a lot of policy documents that use the word quite easily. And actually, it's a complex word. And my danger that it becomes more of a buzzword and it's used as a bit of a, oh, you're resilient or we're working on its resilience schools. But really, it's a rather complex human element. When we focus better into the causes of mental health difficulties, some research suggests that if certain discourses occur, they might lead to problems. And that's that the word might's the key word there. But many would still agree that a development of the opposites of discourses are worthwhile. So for those interested in, in research and studies, um, I would steer you towards an accessible thread of psychology. And that is positive psychology. And it's quite an interesting field because it really focuses on those positive ideas. And it, it felt really... Uh, relevant to schools and it felt really relevant to education at the moment so I would you know if you can just type in positive psychology and you'll get some really nice ideas that I think um, really help with social emotional mental health but you might not see it on the first instance so based on all the background reading and with, within my slides that you can welcome there's quite a few links to different background reading if you're interested and conversation with others and my personal experiences that I've shared I went about developing a simple system for promoting better well-being in my school. You, you might ask why I'm developing something new. But personally, I've never liked the bogged down nature of packages. Some things I feel that um, sometimes are overly complicated and sometimes it might be cynical, as I might say, to justify the cost of these packages. And I also know I wanted parents and any person who works in the school, many who have no interest in educational theory, writing reports and planning, but their practice is amazing. They, they get the children and they can describe the relationships they have. I wanted a system that allows for a person like this to be valued. We have a severe learning difficulties school and I want to develop parent involvement. We know 
that time is limited in school and to get real impact, parents need to be central to learning. I wanted an approach that was easy to understand, but ultimately of value. So four tags were developed. So much like tags on Twitter, the idea was that you could tag these tags to a moment, situation or feeling scene. The evidence for learning app allowed us to use these tags when our staff capture visit videos and photos of the learners. The use of tags also allowed you to be able to sort or filter the evidence gathered. And that's the real power of the application, really. I feel the parent element of these tags felt accessible to all those around the child. It's such a simple idea of tagging. And I suppose it's why Twitter has really taken off, because it's just a simple tag, and then you can filter by that tag with such ease. So we felt that we, we got on board with parents quite easily, and we got on board with all our staff within the school. So the four tags, the first one being was around being kind to others. And this was developed by focusing on some of the concrete evidence informed mental health assessments. So as, as I will tell many people that most mental health approaches are focused on a medical side. So they focus on the idea that if you have a problem, um, you get fixed. So you'd have some sort of counselling or some sort of a, a medical approach to be fixed. So if you look at the evidence that they need to be able to say that you have a mental health problem, if you look at some of the assessments like the strength and difficulties questionnaire, they they have a focus on the impact of a person that wasn't that isn't kind. It's an interesting idea, and it's around this idea that if someone isn't particularly kind generally then they could develop severe mental health challenges. And I felt that that was quite um, important. I think in society, if you're not kind to others, um, you can often find you're quite segregated. So I felt that was a really important area. So spinning that, because the strength of difficulties questionnaire, like the medical psychology, will generally try to put a negative element to it. So the my tags, I wanted to spin. So I put it on his head. So about a tag of promoted kindness. And one I'm sure you agree, as society, we need a little bit more work on. The next tag, um, having fun, may appear obvious, but I think it's important to highlight. It, it is a life skill. You, if you don't have happiness or have fun in your life, then you have more potential of developing kind of depressive tendencies and stuff like that. And you can see it a lot in adults that we have generally in society. And if you look at education on the whole, if a person isn't enjoying the activity or what they're doing, generally they won't do it. And they're more likely not to be engaged in it. And if they're not engaged and if they're not motivated, then the chances of them learning are, are very small. So we cannot forget the power of fun. And there is a lot of research that shows the positive impact. So the third tag um, was feeling proud. Focuses on the discourse of flourishing. So in my previous slide, I talked about these discourses and this discourse of flourishing is, is really important. Human beings want to flourish. Maslow, as many will know, and others knew long ago that we want to feel proud of our achievements and what we do. I suppose a good example I saw recently was one of our learners gaining independence with his feeding equipment. He worked on the skills for days. And the great thing about the app was we were able to capture the moments during that process of his learning, but also just as he completed the process independently. And you, you could see in the video the proudness in his eyes. And we shared it with parents, and I know that they, they were amazed by what they were seeing. And actually, they now have in their palm of their hand something they can show other people. Um, so I'm sure they're, they're using it as an example to show what their young person can do. And when a young person has so many difficulties in their life, Something like feeling proud is probably a universal thing that everyone can feel. And I think that's the key thing about these tags. I want them to be universal. I wanted them not to be dependent on how much special needs that they have or how many difficulties they may have. It's actually about something that will capture the positives in many moments. And then the final tag is around building strong relationships. One that I think most of us listening would agree is very, very, very relevant at the moment. And it's a key lever of the recovery of curriculum, as I'm sure you would agree, an obvious area to focus on. I hope you would agree the simplicity of tags would help parents and it helps our parents. Also, TAs and midday supervisory assistants who often don't have much time in the school. We haven't got a huge amount of opportunity for training. 
but we felt that they were able to get the grip of these tags easily. And I also like to share that these are developed last summer. So before any of the idea of COVID um, was ever mentioned. So, but I hope you agree they, they feel relevant now as they did in the past. And I feel that they feel relevant in the future. So we have our tags. And as mentioned earlier, that I launched the idea of this uh, um, evidence for learning networking event. So we had a number of schools wanted to be involved. So we had six schools that wanted to be involved in the project um, scattered across the UK. And we had one in New Zealand that was interested in it as well. So we then had to think about how this would work. Okay. So the, any, the impact of any project boils down to the system that we put into place. Those tags on their own will not have any impact without a system around them. And I knew that the, fr the thread of the project was around these tags. It was this idea of capturing the tag, sharing with parents, celebrating, which is very important, learning from, replicating, and then encouraging or repeating. So the idea was in time, I hope would be more occurrences of these tags would be seen. In turn, that would develop protective mental well-being elements that put a child in a better position to cope with challenges later in life. I knew, though, that without a system of inquiry placed within the project, it would not have an impact. So we, we had to build this uh, system of inquiry to make sure it, had, it worked, basically. So an important element of inquiry is reflection. Without the time to look through and learn from any videos and photos, the impact of learning will be basic. And what I mean by basic, I mean it is rooted on that moment. So it will just be about recording, observing that moment rather than that formative approach of using that. And I think formative assessment is used, but I believe that it could be taken further. And things like the evidence for learning and inquiry approach has the potential for that. But the underlying message um, was always about who is this for? So taking this, who is it for further, a key element of my social emotional mental health project was around the purpose of it. The purpose being to improve mental well-being of children in the study. All had a special educational need and it led to me having the thoughts on whether we needed to focus on what's happening around that child and the positive interactions that occur around that child. We found that when we explored in the school, that often when it comes to interactions, either with staff, with the learners, or even with parents, it is around praise. And praise is, is common, but it's a very complex area. And I suppose the value of praise is widely discussed. And we've discussed it a lot in our school over the last couple of years, the purpose of praise. And in our minds, our severe learning difficulties learners Praise is built around the idea of knowledge and good learning or knowledge. How is praise used, though, is, is difficult because often we use, we celebrated in assemblies or certificates. But through observing this and talking to the students where possible, I would argue the reason for the praise is lost with the, with the piece of paper. And often you, it's a difficult to disconnect that with what actually happened. So an interesting area of research that people might be interested to look into a little bit more is around descriptive praise. And in that field, they would argue that the traditional good boy, well done, that's great, and it doesn't help. Um, while describing what you're praising for can help build and understand why and hopefully in turn encourage replication. So we wanted to build in this idea of celebration in there and particularly around parents because parents are very good at celebrating but we really wanted to build in that why we're celebrating and what we're trying to achieve. So that was the real drive, was to develop reflection into the project, which then would help us to hopefully increase the occurrences and improve the knowledge of everyone taking part. So it was all about making time to look at the evidence collected. The evidence for learning app itself helps in having easier access to all the evidence captured across a cohort. 
the great thing about it, in years gone by, we used to have to bring folders out of the classroom and put them all on the table and scatter bits of paper everywhere. And we all got lost in just paperwork. But it's so much easier now because we just have an iPad or a computer and we can look at everything possibly across the school or even localised down to a class if necessary or even a person. So it was very important in the project that teachers, whoever's involved in the study, were able to get together to review the situation, activity or action that caused the tag being seen and if we can learn anything from this. The project ensured this occurred across all the schools. So the system was set up, so it occurred. And then the idea is it was shared back to us. But as you, as you know, COVID turned up uh, in March time. So it, it kind of stopped this system being out of work. But we did have uh, a number of outcomes or impact, even for the short time that the project ran, which was about six, seven months. And as you can see, for those who can see the slides, we were able to see approaches that were being used in different settings. We were able to share them honestly, and we were able to start to learn from them. And this was all without paying for a package or approach, because I think the openness of that collaboration between the schools was really great. And I think the system of the project helped for that to occur. So there was an element of prompting, so all the schools involved in the study were able to do their reflective um, studies, their questioning around the research, and we shared that all in. And the potential is the project's um, meant to, and it will restart, or as soon as we're able to, to do this at different points across the year. So we build a bank of ideas that, and support and able to share videos and photos or pieces of evidence that can really generate ideas in the education in their schools. So my reflections on the project even though it was a short time, but there was a significant um, amount of preparation before the formal project start. And I, and I suppose I've shared with quite a number of people, but it's not just the social, emotional, mental health of the project that was the big um, positives, really. It was the inquiry system that it valued and used. And I suppose it's made me reflect on the power of evidence. And I, and I want to encourage people to think that it's more than just a photo or video to show progress for an individual learner. I know time is precious in schools, and I know the reason why many ideas, initiatives and projects often don't get the traction they need. Often this is due to contact time with teachers, let's be honest. There's only so many hours in a day. And I suppose this project in the first instance made me think about the use of moderation in the school, in our school. It's an obvious slot. I get it three times a year for my assessment work on my other role. And it's a consistent part of the calendar. But let's be honest, it's loathed by many teachers. It can feel quite dry. And I wanted it, this project um, and this project kind of helped to support to focus more than just moderation being an element of marking. I suppose it's like a teacher marking to see whether an evidence is uh, valid or, or relevant or accurate. So I wanted that moderation to be around feeding into more than just marking. And I, I felt that there's a potential for it to be used for curriculum ideas and develop teaching and learning um, skills. So there's this idea of using that time for inquiry. I'm an advocate of a working document style curriculum. Um, you know, and when I mean by that, I mean that you'd have signposts within the curriculum, but the roadmap of get there should be wide and creative. We need to, we need to really put trust in our um, practitioners in the school I and mean, we need to improve we need to use their knowledge to see if they can get to the end goal of the curriculum so I suppose the challenge is to be confident to articulate this personal journey a child has and it it doesn't have to be through reams of paper so thinking of assessment and um, if you think of even a formal assessment like GCSE for instance it's only assessing part of a construct it doesn't assess everything. And I think people forget that, really. And we should, we should think the same with our own assessment approaches and think about what we value most. So, so moving on slightly from my project um, to the second part, where we're looking at a bit more of a general presentation of my thoughts of inquiry and hopefully a potential with the current situation we're in. And... Personally, I, I know it's hard to see a silver line in the current situation because you, all you've got to do is look at the media. But, 
you know, it's not often that schools have an element of a pause. And I know many will laugh at that. And I know schools have not paused. You know, in fact, I feel like I've worked harder during this time as I might do before. But there is a pause, an assessment, the school systems and additional teaching and learning. So it has the potential to allow us to really update what we're doing really it is an opportunity of reflection we have paused particularly assessment has been formally paused and i feel that there's an opportunity here for we to develop our formative side use inquiry a lot more i think i'm you i'm saying about assessment because inquiry has a real strength um to reform that area so developing a finding out culture which is another way of describing inquiry isn't easy it is important to think strategically about what you would want, what we want the schools to look like. Obviously, that might seem obvious, but often schools will have snappy visions and mission statements. See it all over the websites and all that. But if and and their policies look quite slick. But if you actually dig below the surface, um, actually, the practice in the school looks no different to anywhere else. And actually, I suppose because if you look through those documents, you often won't see the systems behind it. And I think true culture comes through systems. And systems often might appear in policies, but generally what we mean by systems is time. And this idea of time for certain tasks or activities. I suppose with all businesses, schools and systems, everything could be seen as time. And I, I encourage um, leadership teams to start to think of time a little bit clearer. Because I think that's sometimes wondering why we can't get things done. And I suppose time is defined, which is the great thing about it. And we only have a certain amount. And often when we're thinking about workload, often, as I just said, the school leaders forget that time element. And quite often, the reason why we have a workload problem in teaching is often because we put more task expectation on people rather than taking things away. So I like to think of uh, the school development plan as being seen of um, units of time and you know, what, what the expectations on people, but also more likely, the more time you give to a project, the more impact you'll have from it, rather than having a hundred different projects running in the school all with a little bit of time, you generally probably won't see impact in anything. But if you focus on three or four projects and put time into it, um, you, you could, you'll possibly see some impact. So, I feel valid activity that might be worthwhile during this period, and I've done it briefly in my slide here, is a, is a bit of a wish list, really, because um, the, the idea of recovery is, is great, but the danger is that the recovery is we're just going back to the norm. And I'm not sure no school in the land would describe themselves as perfect. And I feel recovery could be a missed opportunity if we just use it as a timestamp. We're just going to recover during the autumn term and then we're back to normal during the spring and summer. There's a missed opportunity here. So I'd like to encourage people that read the Think Peace on Recovery to see it more as a, as a kind of a, as you say, a spark. It's, it's kind of that opportunity to really have an opportunity to change systems and culture that might be needed in the school. So my wish list um, started with a reflection of the before. Before COVID, uh, we thought about the systems we had in place. Did they work? Did they have the time we needed to make an impact? I know in my school, our systems can feel a little dated, um, particularly now in the interactive world we live in. And, the, you know, reading through policies, particularly our teaching and learning curriculum sort of stuff, learning walks and observations, um, it feels kind of not as relevant as they once did. So we did review our curriculum, as many did with Ofsted. Um, but overall, I feel that um, we, we have potential to take it further. And it was interesting because being a governor on the, on the side as such, uh, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine. And it, it really brought home the challenges that we all have at the moment in this COVID situation. Uh, she's shielding and her deputy's shielding as well. So, But the school has been open the whole time. It's a primary school, but it's been open throughout the whole time and it's building up um, this cohort at the moment, like many primaries. But she's, she's actually found this process of being away from the classroom, a kind of a forced aware, awareness from the school, has made her think about um, how she's been a bit more strategic. 
she would gladly admit that she's a hands-on head like many of us are and she's very good at her role and respected in school but the situation has forced her to think differently about how she supports teaching and learning and she's had to explore the ideas of trust autonomy and how the school systems can necess- can work even though the the slt aren't there and actually this moment has has brought home an idea of reflecting on that and i think there's an opportunity here we all know workload for teachers is becoming cumbersome and we know that morale in the profession generally is is low so these ideas of trust and autonomy are valid areas to uh, focus our time because I, I believe that if you give trust and autonomy to leads in the classroom over what they do, then the chances are they're going to be a lot more motivated in their role. Back to my setting, uh, one of the big wish, big wishes we had before, still, and I suppose even after, is more time for reflection. My, my project started to show the impact that reflection can have But what if we take that reflection to other areas of the school, where it's our curriculum, as I talked about before, that we're reviewing, the strategies that we use, the day-to-day functions. Sometimes we just don't have the time to reflect. But we've got to be careful, though, because we can quickly build up quite a list. But we're just mindful to always remember that idea of time and how it allows you to think about the resources that we have. So if you think of time as in time of a middle leader on a task or a TA stepping up. It all boils down to time. So I hope recovery encourages empathy in schools. It needs to. The recovery think piece spoke about this idea of understanding. And I think without empathy within your recovery, I can't imagine how you're going to gain the engagement of any child. But I would argue that we need empathy throughout. I say education on the whole needs to have a more understanding of what's going on in a young person's life. And without the engagement, of course, we're not going to get the learning. But as I said, should this just be about recovery? The stats Barry shared at the beginning of this podcast, although they're large and difficult to hear, most of them have been with us for a long time. You know, they've been es- they've escalated, I suppose, under COVID, but we've always had this difficulty of um fostering and we've always had this difficulty of loneliness and we've always had this challenge of what's going on at home and how that impacts learning and your future potential and social mobility so surely empathy and understanding needs to be with us now for the foreseeable future i would argue it should have been 20 years ago and also hope we can continue to develop our natural assessment processes so we've done a lot of work in my school around making sure it's natural and the evidence of learning has been a big helpful hand in that But inquiry is rooted on that knowing. And the more we can work in the present, the better. So as I spoke about earlier, formative assessment never has felt more relevant in our thoughts of recovery. As I said, the cancellation of exams and difficult tasks, we're trying to give grades and try to reintroduce these summative assessments potentially next year, only makes me think that maybe this energy could be placed on the formative assessment assessment for learning. It's more important to know what's happening right now and how that impacts tomorrow. The problem with the summative assessment, as we know, that it's it's not an ideal system. It's it kind of it makes very hard to be comparative. And then taking that further on assessment, it's important to think about, um, you know, kind of kind of assessment theory. Okay, so even those that might be listening to us that are quite uh, like GCSEs and other assessments like SATs and stuff, it's important if you look into the theory of assessment and an interesting theory that's been with us a long time is classical test theory. He talks about this idea of a true score. So even all formal assessments based on this idea that if you could delve into a person's brain, you could see their true score, their true understanding of a subject. But we know that in the real world, that true store never replicates. It could be any sort of external factors that could affect that. It could be the fact that it's a very hot day in the exam room and the person hasn't had a, a breakfast before they got in. That might affect their true score being observed in their paper. And I suppose I found it quite interesting when I learned about this assessment theory that actually all our assessments should think in that sort of way. Um, we should take account of the external factors that are affecting a person's learning potential. 
do we do this enough in our schools when it comes to assessment? I would say even in uh, special educational needs, although I think we are more, um, you know, receptive to these external factors. I'd say there's still work to do. And I would definitely say in secondary and primaries, there is a potential to look at how exams are developed and look at how the external factors are taken into account in their development, but also to think of the school as a whole and how that could really impact the assessments you'll get on a daily basis. As I said before, it might sound like I'm talking about assessment a lot, but it's an interesting field of research, but it can lead to frustration how summative assessment and, and the power of inquiry, the power of the evidence for learning that, the power of project-based work like this, um, special, the mental health work is there's a potential to move away from summative assessment and to work more in a formative line. But to have that validity, because you're using the evidence and you're using moderation in the right way, that you have confidence that what you're seeing is accurate. And that's the key thing. And that's the real reason why we use summative assessment in society is down to that accuracy. You want to make sure that you exactly know that they did it in that, in, in that terms. So as I've highlighted, if time is a true thing we can control in sets, then a system needs to give time to the right things. Any recovery curriculum relies on the present understanding of the children, their knowledge of the subject, their skills in a situation, or potentially the emotional state they're in. We may need to record these things. So baselining would be an obvious word used in schools across the country in September. But any baseline's reliability stems often to moderation and in some ways to standardisation. Moderation, though, has always plagued me for a number of years, as, I, as, I, as I've mentioned earlier. So we need to think about um, what, what value we're getting from these baselines, really. And a finding out system is, is not about outcomes. Rather, it's valuing the quality of the investigation. It's valuing the, you know, that mindfulness, the presence of investigating how a learner is presenting what knowledge they're putting across and what skills they're showing. So evidence gathered not solely for a purpose is, is powerful. And because otherwise, if you just automatically just gather evidence for just a framework or a target, you might miss lots of important things. And you might miss those amazing skills. And maybe you might miss something that in the future they might have a real interest in. You know, education itself describes itself as very cause and effect. You teach one thing, which is learned, assessed, and the effect is that the outcome is met. But in real life, particularly in special educational needs, but I would argue across the whole thing, um, you know, is, is, is it a cause and effect? I would describe education as more humanities or an art rather than a science. You know, it's, it's, there's so many human elements to it that it's very hard to see it as, as a simplistic black and white. And as you know, um, research and the science often just use data. And in some respects, I would argue that um, in education, we should be more qualitative rather than quantitative in, in our approaches. Finally, before we move on, I would, I would like to really think about um, how we are um, questioning and thinking about what, what, what we what we're kind of getting at to developing a finding out system. So questions are really powerful in in the sense of setting up a system so the great thing often about um governance any of those who are familiar with governance is that ability of questions and sometimes i always thought the best governors would be a governor that would have been from an educational background i thought they're going to know schools they're going to know what it's all about they're going to get the best insight but actually some of the best governors i've known are people that aren't involved in education they they haven't they ask sometimes the most insightful questions. They ask questions like, what is important? Why are you doing that? And sometimes even myself would be, uh, well, we've always done that, or that's just what's expected. And also they might, might ask about what progress is. So I would encourage leaders when setting up systems of inquiry in their schools or even assessment generally to, to ask themselves these three core questions. So what do we mean by impact? What is progress and what is important? So drawing the idea of inquiry together, um, I hope I've shared the importance of time, reflection and systems. 
but a good starting place to start to think about assess, uh, systems is to look at what I've described here as four key areas that I think we could systemize quite easily and it could really have an impact in the school, particularly in the sense of recovery and in the sense of inquiry. So reflection, if you don't have it in a diary, it often won't happen. Some are truly reflective practitioners, but is that truly re reflection? I suppose if you can encourage that reflective practitioners, you know, that idea of having journals and bits of like that, but that's only one viewpoint. And I would challenge that um, it's more powerful to reflect with others, particularly people that aren't necessarily um, know your cohort. Because I, as I said about governors a moment ago, if you have people in the room that are asking those kind of, some might describe ignorant questions, are actually quite a powerful way of drilling in to find out whether your reflection is truly powerful. And I, I've spoken today about, in many different ways, about the importance of being present. And this is an important part of the recovery of curriculum, about being present, being focused on the now. And, and I like the idea of mindfulness, and it's very useful. And I, I like to see that mindfulness. I know in, in other podcasts that I've listened to, mindfulness in the sense of our students and children. But I think it can really help teachers develop that mindfulness to focus on the now. So, you know, if you think about it, tomorrow never comes, you know, we never get to tomorrow because we always have a new day. And that, you, you know, every day should be amazing. And, you know, and that is the dream all schools have. And, you know, many would argue if you truly want to be outstanding, then you should be amazing every day. And I would argue that you need systems that focus on mindfulness and focus on the present to assure that. Um, so both, basically, if you don't, you know, have that reformative assessment systems, you don't have that trust and autonomy in your staff. And if you can reduce the bureaucracy in your school, I can't see how that's possible. So collaboration is, is another buzzword that we've had in a number of years. And my project, I hope you've seen, has shown that how you can develop collaboration quite easily and you could use the links that we have. I think the evidence for learning um, power beyond the app is, is so unique compared to a lot of other packages is this idea of togetherness from a number of schools. And I think that can really help to collaborate and it really helps to collaborate in the right ways. And I would reflect this is an area I would like to develop more, really. It, you know, it's amazing how every school is different. But if you look at the children, often there's a similarity in the children that we teach, but every school is different. And they all often every school has different values, resources and approaches. And there's a real pow power in, this, in that statement, basically. And we need to learn more from each other and how we can truly collaborate, focus on a particular area. And I think inquiry can be a lot more than just inquiry on a learner or in the classroom within a school. We could have a lens of inquiry that goes across a number of schools. And I'm pleased to be involved in evidence for learning because I feel that there's that, that collaboration is quite natural and there's opportunities there. And, um, it, you know, I think inquiry can be developed um, with ease. And, and finally, uh, COVID has offered a new take on learning. That you know, this new role of home learning has taken off. Um, you know, parents have been pushed into the roles of teachers. There is a potential of a new togetherness, and I hope that this is in the forefront of schools' minds. So when we're thinking about recovery and inquiry, use this togetherness as a key part. Don't let it drift. You know, there's a potential of home learning when we're all back in the school. We don't need it anymore. But I, I would argue that you won't get the impact you might feel in your curriculum if you don't have that home learning element. So the tools like Evidence for Learning, you know, have those systems of partnership that, and togetherness um, with parents. It has the system there. So we just want to evolve it and renew it for the future. And I, I personally love the way parents can upload a video from home and together both the school and home can tag the assessment. I feel that's truly formative and it has a real power. And then, you know, you know, maybe one of those takeaway questions could be, is it truly generalised, any skill, until you see it completely out of your sector? Unless you see it happen independently at home, um, is, it, is it truly there? And I think that's a challenge with our um, 
education system at the moment. I did my GCSE many years ago, but it was it was very environmental. I knew those maths equations in the classroom. I knew it why I did my exam. I did what I needed to to get the grade, but I would struggle to know that knowledge now in another context. So, you know, let's think about what generalise really means. So to finish my presentation, um, I would like those that can see the slides, you'll see that I've shared a rainbow. But it's not a rainbow taken off Google. It's a, a rainbow that is actually in our school at the moment. And it was made quite soon after we went into lockdown. So one of the first weeks, one of the classes were able to make these rainbows to represent um, for key workers and bits and bobs like that. And it's been up ever since, since March. And those that can see will see that it's starting to look a bit aged and weathered. You know, it's had a few um, windy moments and it's the rain's got to it. But and I, I was thinking, should we take it down? Should we replace it with a new one? But I like it. You know, I think it shows how far we've come. I think we have to take it down at some point because it will fall off the wall. But it, although it's it's starting to um, peel and show, it's a reminder that we're not forgetting the journey that we've been on in the last four months. And I think the recovery curriculum has the potential to be um, like this rainbow, which eventually it will be taken down you know, probably in this case put in a bin, but I hopefully the recovery quick can be put in a box or saved within a hard drive to, to pick up at another time. But um, I wouldn't want to be it to be seen as a memory. And I hope but by listening to my podcast and all the others in this series that you, you can start to see that recovery is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for a new spark in education, a new focus of inquiry and a new new focus on things that are important, not things that we have to do, but the important things. And if you set up the right systems and you give time to these systems, um, you will start to see the impact. And hopefully um, we will see a better education come out the other side of COVID than we had before. And that's really important. Last couple of slides on my PowerPoint have some references that people might find important. And finally, if you're in any way interested in inquiry, obviously Evidence for Learning is a great collaborative tool um, to build of inquiry in the future. But if anyone wants to get in contact and have a discussion or share resources and bits, feel free to. And my details are on the final slide. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for the insights you've shared this afternoon. Quite early on in your presentation, I was struck by your reference to kindness. Um, we've emphasised a lot about compassionate leadership. I'm sure something that you and your senior team uh, in these times of crisis have very much tried to exercise across the school uh, and to that wider parental community you referred to too. But you also implied, you know, that being kind is something more than we take it for at face value. And indeed, you're right. In, in um, Mental Health Awareness Week a few weeks back, the whole theme was kindness and Mental Health Foundation did a wonderful research briefing, which we referred to in earlier podcasts and referenced, about if you smile to someone, it doesn't just make the person you smiled at feel good, it actually makes you feel good because of that act of kindness. And the chemical release you experience is actually good for your, your well-being. Um, and in the podcast we recorded with Amanda Mordy that uh, has just been released, um, and she looked at the smile program based on the uh, the smile approach based on the five ways to well-being. She has a card she gives to children and to staff called Caught Being Kind. And I just think that was uh, a good tie-in with the sorts of things you shared with us in this presentation this afternoon. And I, I really like your final points about inquiry as a journey. Yes, it's reflective. Yes, it gives us evidence. But inquiry fills in those gaps where reflection and evidence are not enough. In this context of a new generation of children in this 21st century, and now post-pandemic, who knows what profiles of need we're going to start to look to uh, receive from children, particularly in that domain of mental health that you've spoke, spoken so articulately about this afternoon. We are going to be presented, I think, with children the likes of which we've never seen before. And the inquiry process to illuminate their learning needs is going to be key, and I know from your own work with Evidence for Learning, as a tool for inquiry, 
that shines the light into those crevices of learning behavior that we cannot normally see. Thank you for taking us on that journey this afternoon uh, and for sharing with us how inquiry is particularly going to help us as a teaching profession to make social, emotional and mental health dynamic in our schools, a rich learning experience for our children that truly builds their mental wealth. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more information about the recovery curriculum at www.recoverycurriculum.org. There's links to resources, reference materials, as well as uh, video slide decks. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com. And the homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. You can email us at learningshared at theteachercloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. We've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and details are on the Recovery Curriculum and Learning Shared web pages. You can search for Recovery Curriculum as a group inside Facebook. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.